if we can intervene quickly and effectively with teenagers and really put them on the path to positive mental health and good coping skills for the challenges and obstacles that they will encounter, we can completely change the trajectory of their lives. Welcome to Inspiring Leaders, the podcast that shares ideas, perspectives, and best practices from great leaders around the world to help you become a more inspired leader. Welcome back to the Inspiring Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Terry Lepofsky. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our focus for today's episode is something that affects all of us, and that is healthcare leadership. You know, our health happens to be one of the things that we don't think a lot about, at least when things are going well. It's like a good game of golf. You don't have much to talk about unless you run into problems. But in the back of our minds, we have a good level of trust that the healthcare community will take good care of us if something bad were to happen. It's for this exact reason that we need to know that we have people who care at the helm of our healthcare institutions. We hope that the people who are providing the leadership and direction for our health facilities truly care about the serious issues that could potentially affect the quality of our lives. Well, today I welcome to the podcast a shining light in the healthcare leadership community A man with decades of exemplary leadership who's fought against the prevailing attitudes and habitual practices to bring us to a better, more healthy lifestyle. Today, we welcome Mr. Alex Munter. Alex, welcome to Inspiring Leaders. Thanks, Terry. Good to be with you. Alex, listen, before we get too deep into things, I have a quick question for you. What leader has inspired you and why? You know, the first person who comes to mind is is Marion Dewar, the late Marion Dewar, who was a public health nurse who then moved into elected politics and ultimately became the mayor of Ottawa. The thing about Marion that was inspiring is her optimism, her belief that it was always possible to build a better world and to make positive change. And not in a naive or Pollyanna kind of way, She was a very realistic, pragmatic person. She radiated optimism, and that is a great energy to be around, and it inspires people to move forward. Well, Alex, that reminds me a lot of you, because I've known you to be the optimistic one, looking towards the better future for all of us. Now, I'm just going to recap, if you don't mind. I'm looking through your LinkedIn history here. You're the president and CEO of the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, which we fondly refer to around here as CHEO. And I think you've been doing that about six years, right? That's right. You're also president of the Ottawa Children's Treatment Centre. But I know that you've been crusading for health-related issues for a lot longer. You used to be the CEO of the Champlain Local Health Integration Network, or LIN responsible for planning, integration, funding, healthcare services around this region. And you've also headed up the Youth Services Bureau, one of Ontario's largest accredited children's mental health agencies. I think if we go back even further, you were a city councillor here in Ottawa, where you led committees responsible for health and social services. Sounds about right. Well, one of the things that I noticed throughout this history is a very big theme that connects all of these dots. I think that you really exemplify that deep caring about people's health in general, but I know that you've also fought tirelessly for some specific causes over the years. Talk to us a little bit about how CHEO is unique 
and what kind of things you guys are up to over there? Well, you know, one of the things that makes a children's hospital different from uh, general hospitals, and we've got many, many fine uh, general hospitals, great institutions in, in our community. We're very blessed here in the National Capital Region. But the thing about kids, of course, is that when kids get sick, they get really sick. That investing in the well-being of children it really is about our whole society and the success. And so part of what that means is when I talk to my counterpart at the Ottawa Hospital, uh, Jack Kitts, most of the patients in the Ottawa Hospital, because it's a specialized tertiary center with many regional programs, will also be patients, have been or will also be patients in other hospitals. That's not the case at CHEO. Kids who come to CHEO, most of them haven't been to another hospital. They're in the child and youth mental health system, in children's rehabilitation, in the school system, getting home care, in a community pediatrician's office. And so the environment we work in is different. We work a lot with child and youth organizations, child and youth health organizations, or child and youth organizations like schools or others, because what we are trying to do and what our mission is really to help every child and youth be their healthiest and to put them on the path to lifelong health. And when we do that, we are not only delivering to them the future that they deserve, but we're also making sure that our economy will be more successful and that our healthcare system will be more effective. Pretty big order, I would say. It is a big mission. One of the great, great things about working as part of the CHEO team and now as well with the Ottawa Children's Treatment Center is that really is a mission-driven organization. People here believe and understand to the core of their being why the work that they do matters and the contribution that it makes. When I started here in 2011, I was going around the organization meeting with different staff teams. I met with the folks in the kitchen. The kitchen is literally in the basement, windowless, these are folks who do not have direct contact with patients personally, but of course, they play a, a crucial role. And what struck me, what I remember walking out of there being so impressed by how seriously they saw their part in helping kids get well, and that they were part of the team that was dedicated to that mission of helping kids and families be their healthiest. It really is quite inspiring. And I think that that ethic, that sense of purpose is what really permeates this organization. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like a very deep sense of purpose for sure. It, it is that. So let's talk a little bit about some of the initiatives that you've got on the go. Take us back a little further, if you would. What are some of the first health-related issues that you've worked on? Well, through municipal government in, in the 1990s, one of the biggest issues that we were tackling from a public health perspective was, was tobacco and smoking. Through the course of the 1990s, governments at all levels were really seized with taking on that issue. And it's 25 years later, and so there's things that we now consider obvious that certainly were not 25 years ago. So 25 years ago, there was a huge big debate about whether or not secondhand smoke contributed to cancer and other illness. And of course, the evidence is now in and the science is clear that obviously being exposed to smoke, whether you're smoking yourself or secondhand, is a threat to your health. At that time, it was still a live debate. I would say the evidence was clear, but it was still a live debate, a bit like climate change today. 
through the 1990s, a whole bunch of different measures. And, and one of them that I was very involved in as chair of the health committee for the city was the banning of smoking in public places and workplaces. I remember that. People were really hot under the collar about that topic. In fact, so much so that I do remember coming into my office really at the height of that debate early, early in the morning, hitting the voicemails, my very first death threat, followed not too long after by my very second death threat, and real anger and hostility. In fact, our medical officer of health at the time, Dr. Krishman, we, we needed to send him into some of the meetings with police protection. It did get quite uh, hot and bothered. And, and what I what I learned about that was that, in fact, the reaction was, in fact, probably less about smoking than it was about the role of government. And what people were reacting to was the idea that government would be telling them what to do. In many ways, that debate in the early 2000s, it was the debate between the freedom from smoke versus freedom to smoke. Now, in 2001, we became the first big city in Canada to say that everybody had the right to freedom from smoke. And we passed the first municipal regulation prohibiting smoking in workplaces and public places. And remember that a restaurant or a bar is a workplace as well as a public place. I don't hear anybody saying, oh, you know, let's bring smoke back into public places and workplaces. But at the time, it was hugely controversial. The other thing we've seen, of course, is that the learning was that stacking a whole bunch of initiatives on top of each other, public place smoking regulations were one measure, taxation of cigarettes was another, uh, prohibition on, on advertising, public education and social marketing. And here in the city of Ottawa, of course, our smoking rate's been cut in half since that time. The, the cost to our healthcare system of treating tobacco-related illness has also been cut in half. Now, ironically, of course, a lot of the savings in healthcare treatment costs that have come from reducing the smoking rate have been replaced by new costs that come from obesity. Uh, certainly when we look at childhood obesity over the last, kind of over that same period, from the time we were kind of really starting in the early 90s to tackle the smoking issue to today, the obesity rate in children, obesity, overweight and obesity rates have almost tripled. So when we think about the priorities for kids, when we think about delivering to children the healthy future that they deserve, one of the biggest threats is that mounting a rate stabilized over the last few years, but stabilized at a very high level. And we're going to need to do the same kind of things that we did with tobacco. Uh, there is no one silver bullet. There's no one public policy change or behavior change that we can make that's going to reduce obesity. And so we're going to have to stack a whole lot of initiatives on top of each other. You may have heard, for example, that the Ottawa Board of Health is now looking at prohibiting the marketing of junk food that targets kids. The federal government has talked about the same kind of measure many jurisdictions around the world that have implemented sugar taxes and soda taxes that have been successful in reducing the rate of consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages, for example. There are efforts to increase access to affordable, nutritious food. There's the use of behavioral science to nudge people to make the, the right choice, the healthy choice, the easier choice. There's obviously a public education, but we're not going to educate our way out of the obesity epidemic. We're, we're going to have to really take all of these measures together 
And I think we can learn a lot from what happened in Quebec. And we can learn from the fact that it is going to be difficult. It is going to be contentious, that there are people who are going to be angry about the fact that they will perceive government as interfering with their freedom. I would say when we're talking about kids, when we're talking about kids' future, we want to preserve their freedom to have their best life possible, to move from childhood to adulthood with as bright and promising a future as possible. As a parent, I can tell you that anybody who's taking the helm of this kind of initiative or lending a hand to it, I'm supportive of them. And and I, for one, won't be leaving you any uh, terrible voicemail messages like you had years back. Well, that's a relief, Terry, other than to tell me it's time for the next podcast, right? (laughs) Right. No, I uh, think what you're doing is fantastic. And I think the evidence is all around us. I don't know about you, Alex, but I recall looking around my neighborhood and seeing kids everywhere outside playing. That's just simply not the case anymore. You walk around any residential neighborhood, at least in North America, as you walk around the streets, you're wondering, where are all the kids? Most definitely the choices in the schools and where the kids are, it's a really big piece of this puzzle. My hat's off to you for everything that you're doing. Well, thank you. And, you know, it's quite interesting. Uh, There is some data actually out of CHEO research here that would show that the rate of participation by kids in organized sports, so gym class, soccer, hockey, or so on, has not actually gone down very much. Oh, you're kidding. Pretty consistent over the last number of decades. What has decreased is kids' rate of activity the other 23 hours of the day. And so where kids would play outside, they're playing on computers now. Where they would walk to school, they're they're getting transportation to school. And so Overall, the amount of physical activity that children have is much lower than it used to be. But in fact, in an organized, structured way, it's actually not that different. And so for sure, physical activity, making sure kids get enough sleep. The lack of sleep is directly correlated to uh, to obesity in, in kids and adults. Those are important pieces of the puzzle. I think by now, hopefully disproven, but there's still the view that we just kind of keep repeating this mantra of eat less, move more. That's going to fix the problem. We need to do more than that. We need to change the food environment. And that's going to be painful and and complex because it it relates to behavior change for all of us. One of the differences, there's many, many, many similarities between the issues around tobacco and obesity. Uh, But there's also differences. And and the, the most significant difference, of course, is nobody needs to smoke. Everybody needs to eat. Right. And so we have to figure out a way to incent and encourage the choices that will lead to children's health. And also, I think, to protect kids and families. And this is where the new legislation that the federal government is is talking about, some of the conversation here in the city of Ottawa from the Board of Health around the marketing of junk food at children is important. I co-chaired a panel on childhood obesity in Ontario several years ago, and we consulted with parents. And one of the things that really struck me is how often we would hear from parents that they felt in a competition between their messages and what they were trying to accomplish in terms of of healthy food and healthy eating, and then a multi-billion dollar marketing industry that was also talking to their children. Many of those parents felt it was a very unlevel playing field ever more so in the kind of information age that we all, including children, increasingly live in. And so part of showing leadership as a society on behalf of our kids is, in fact, to put some restrictions in place to protect kids as they develop, as they grow, as their brains get 
more sophisticated to be able to understand some of these messages so that they can learn to make the healthy choices. I wonder if maybe we can move this discussion from some of the leadership that you're providing on a grander scale and maybe move it into what it is that you're doing at CHEO these days from a facility and an organizational perspective. Are there any tie-ins between the two? I know that you're really looking at the long-term impact on people on the society side, but where do you see the parallels with that in some of your day-to-day operations and leading things for the hospital? In child health, in a variety of areas, we play different kinds of roles. In, in some areas, it is our job to lead and to deliver services, and in others, it is to support community organizations and work with them to help them make a difference for kids and families. And so if I think across the organization, you could point to our research enterprise, where there is a tremendous amount of effort in areas like healthy, active living and obesity, but also in areas like cancer research, and neonatal care, emergency care, concussion prevention, where our scientists and researchers here really are creating the evidence to both support prevention but also to improve the treatment and care that kids receive when they uh, get sick. We're also focused, of course, on, on faster access because sometimes treatment is prevention. So when we think, for example, about mental illness, when we talk to adults with mental illness, we know that two-thirds of uh, adults are struggling with anxiety, depression, and other mental health challenges two-thirds of them trace the onset of those challenges to adolescence. So if we can intervene quickly and effectively with teenagers and really put them on the path to positive mental health and good coping skills for the challenges and obstacles that they will encounter, again, we can change their lives, completely change the trajectory of their lives but also make a great contribution to our our society as a whole. And and that's the case as well across many, many areas of the work that we do. And so that, you know, in many ways, the takeaway message, you know, back to the beginning, how is pediatrics, how is a, a children's hospital different than other hospitals? I think that is the value proposition around here. We call that pedianomics, the economics of pediatrics. Our, our child and youth population is growing. There are going to be 600,000 more kids in 20 years than there are today. In this region, there will be 70,000 more children and youth in 20 years than there are today. And those kids, as they grow up, are in fact part of the great competitive advantage that is going to power our economy, our society. They are the innovators, taxpayers, the workers, caregivers, uh, the creators. And so we're very conscious here at, at CHEO and, and the Children's Treatment Center, but I know all child and youth serving organizations have, share that ethic. We're very conscious that putting kids on that path to health and success and well-being really is one of the most significant things we can do to help. You know, when I think about a hospital, one of the things that comes to mind is I'm always hoping that they are going to be able to react quickly and appropriately to take care of me if something should happen or take care of my kids. But what really impresses me about the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario is the fact that not only are you fantastic at reacting when you need to, but you put so much emphasis and priority on being proactive and heading things off before they become a problem 
and figuring out how to stop things from continuing down the path that they already have. My hat's off to you. I think that what you guys are doing over there in a proactive sense, Alex, is true leadership. And I think that it's something that we can all learn from. Thank you, Terry. Now, before we get going, I do have a couple of questions, if you don't mind. These are something I like to ask everybody that comes on the show again. The first one is this. What are some of the big challenges that you see facing a lot of leaders out there today, whether in healthcare or not? I think that the pace of information and the expectations around the rapidity of response, everybody is grappling with that. Obviously, I'm not talking here about critical care unit or emergency department. They, they respond and they react quickly on the clinical side. But what I'm talking about is the Twitter where people expect a tweet back in, in real time, where complex issues get boiled down to simple solutions that are supposed to be delivered, we used to say, within the news cycle. The news cycle doesn't exist anymore, all in real times. So I think being able to distance ourselves from the noise from the, the need to be reactive so that we can be not just managing today's problems, but thinking about how we get ahead of tomorrow's problems. I think that's a challenge for all of us. I think that that's well aligned with the direction that you're providing at CHEO. Well, here's my second question for you, Alex. What does inspired leadership mean to you? I think inspired leadership means listening as much as you're talking. In my early 20s, read a book called Certain Trumpets by Gary Wills, and he talks about the fact that leaders need to really listen and understand people that they are seeking to mobilize. So do here at Chio, for example, we require all executives spend time on the front line, talking to patients and families, talking to frontline staff and physicians, understanding what the issues are, figuring out how it is that we can move the organization forward. You know, communications, when you talk about communications and leadership, a lot of that's about output, about broadcasting. I think it needs to be equally as much about listening and hearing and recalibrating. I hear you on that one for sure. Alex, if people need to connect with you, what's the best way that they can find you? Well, you know, you can find me on Twitter, my website, sorry, my, my email address is on the CHIO website. I've got your Twitter handle and your profile from LinkedIn. I'll put it in the show notes if that's okay. Perfect. Alex, thank you so much for being part of Inspiring Leaders today. I very much appreciate it. I know that the people listening in right now appreciate it as well. So thank you very much for being part of this today. Thank you. It's been fun. Thanks again for being part of our quest to make inspired leadership ubiquitous. Wherever you are, we hope that we've helped to inspire you and that you'll pay it forward by inspiring others. Until next time, take care, everybody. Bye for now.